Hello and welcome to New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs and we are online at nyupdate.org. Today we are pleased to have as a guest Mindy Rosier Rayburn. She is, like me, a New York City school teacher, but she's also the president of the Chelsea Reform Democratic Club, influential Manhattan-based political group. She is also a two-time Bernie Sanders delegate, and she is also an elected executive board member of the UFT, which is the New York City Teachers Union. So let's jump right into the interview. This is Mindy Rosier Rayburn. How you doing, Mindy? I'm hanging in there. It's... It's the best way I can describe based on what's been going on lately. Just hang it in and make the best of everything. Yeah, we are a couple weeks into online learning. And Mindy, you are a, a science teacher. And what grades do you teach? Um, I'm in a District 75 school, and uh, we're elementary. And so I teach science from the pre-K through fifth grade. Okay. So I see all, all my little bitties. Right, and so that and that's like the traditional cluster teacher where you handle yes. everybody in the school in that subject. So yeah, we were talking a little bit about the pros and cons of online teaching, mostly cons, I guess. But the reality is, not every kid has hardware. Not every kid has a quiet place. Not every kid has an ideal learning area or situation. So I'm sure we're going through a lot of the same things. But I met Mindy a long time ago. I guess we were in meetings of a union or maybe the Badass Teachers Association. We're in so many groups, but we've been in touch. And Mindy, you are definitely an, an activist. I would say you're a pretty strong and pretty well-connected activist at this point. So can you bring us through your the origins or the beginnings of how you became an education activist? How I became an activist is something that I fell into, and once I guess I got my bearing, it's like, this is how I should always be. I should always be fighting for something. You know, I felt like I had a purpose. And what happened with me, uh, my school is C811, we're in Harlem. And we are co-located with the first Success Academy. Oh. We started up same time, 2006. And only had a few classrooms. We had our section of the school. There's also another school, Sojourner Truth, 149 that shares the building, and we have a few rooms at Harlem Sound. And for the first first few years, we had a good, you know, decent relationship with Success Academy, but then slowly they wanted more space, and then wanting more space meant we lost space. Right. So over the years, we lost our library, our music room, our computer room, several classrooms, 149, same thing. They lost a bunch of their classrooms. So while we're scrambling to make things work, you know, like, like our, our teacher, teacher with her push card, right. you know, they have their own block, block room. They have their, their, I don't think they have the dance room anymore uh-huh. because, I, because they complained about that because, because we couldn't give up more classrooms and that they needed, so they had to give something up. Right. But, um, but this was in, I believe it was 2012, not long after the school year started, we got the notification that over the course of three years that they were going to take, that the Union Success Academy, they were going to take away three classrooms, our safe room, and the room that where we do speech. And 
closing that down, we, we, would, we would have lost our faith. I mean, we are, we're not a big school. Right. And that was always the goal of theirs, was to take over our faith. And this wound up becoming a big fight, because this was right before uh, Bloomberg was making his exit and de Blasio was making his entrance. Mm-hmm. And they didn't... The, at the time, it was, there really wasn't much controversy about, about Success Academy. It was up to a point, but it became real for us because the majority of us in my school, we were quiet. You know, we, we, we complained about this, that, or the other, but we really weren't active teachers. And when this happened in 2012, when it became a plan of what they were going to do, which like I said, would have kicked us out of our space. We, we, we had to fight back because we were going to lose our space. And we went to one of our pet meetings, and it was all Bloomberg's cronies across the stage, and they were all on their phones. They were not paying us any attention or any respect, rather. The theater arts teacher, she came and she testified, and we had our, our three little minutes. And she had something planned to speak. But when she got up and she saw how everyone was looking down on the phone, she yelled at them, like, you know, this is about the livelihoods of our students, and you can't even be bothered to show us the respect and listen. So what happened at um, at that meeting, this was over, if I remember correctly, for three faces that they were fighting over. One was for hours. And um, the other ones were in high schools. And we, we all lost the, the space at that time. When de Blasio came into office, he was aware of our school. And he, he had informed us that he was not going to let, you know, special needs students get kicked out of their school. Right. Um, so behind the scenes, like once he became mayor, he overturned. Um, the decision about our school and about the high school. Um, and he was then trying to find space for her. Now, meanwhile, um, all you saw on the commercials was Moskowitz, you know, Eva Moskowitz showing her, uh, I think it was like 144 students. It was a commercial that Families for Excellent Schools um, spent over $6 million on. Mm-hmm. And it was lies because basically they showed you pictures of 144 students claiming that the Blasio kicked them out of their school. Now they left out. They were never students in our building. Therefore, they were never kicked out. Yeah. These were students that were at another building. Moscow promised the parents, you know, that they were getting the space. And so the way it was it turned out to the media was that they got kicked out of their space. And that's when I started getting really angry. I'm reading reports in the newspaper, I'm seeing the commercials, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, that's not the truth. And I started calling out reporters when they had wrong information. And some of these reporters, you know, from Chalkbeat or from the Daily News, I wound up being friendly with afterwards over the years. But it was, even like the local politicians, that everyone was being lied to. And that was my enough was enough moment was a matter of trying to save my school. 
And I would spend weekends trying to call parents, trying to get them involved, because um, um, AQE, um, they were, you know, they were helping out with uh, getting us an education lawyer for parents that they needed to sue. I mean, it, it was really a big deal. And technically, if you go all the way back, our school is what really sparked the very, I'm trying to think of the, the right word, the very public feud between Cuomo and de Blasio, because initially, Cuomo didn't care. He didn't care about what was going on in our school and our state. He didn't care that special needs kids were going to be kicked out of their building, out of their, you know, their, their second home. Huh. You know, what he did at that point was show support to the charters, because that was the year. He, you know, where he was very, where he did, um, I think, a rally for them. And Hopel, she did a rally yeah. on Lobby Day. Right. Um, and, and meanwhile, the Blasio's defending his position, saying we're not kicking out the special needs kids. And it just—it was a, a headache that went on for many months. And long story, still long. You know, they got their space. I think it was the Cabrini School in Washington Heights. Mm-hmm. That's where he found their space. And she publicly said. We'll accept it, but it it wasn't idea. What they what she really wanted was to take over our building. Right. Yeah, she didn't care. It was always about real estate, so to speak. But yeah. in my fight to save my school, you start looking at who are the players behind the scenes. You know, who are the people that are supporting and investing in Success Academy, and you start looking, hey, these are the same people that are also supporting Cuomo. And at that point, that's when I became politically active. I was also never political. I was the type of person, it's like, tell me who you think I should vote for. (laughs) I always believed that I had to vote, but I didn't care about the process or anything. Right. And which is unfortunate, but I think many of us have that background that until something affects us personally, you know, that's when we speak up. And I'm just grateful that it was, you know, later better than ever. But you can't have education without politics. It's impossible. There is always something going on behind the scenes. And the more I read, the more I researched, the more I learned, the more I got angry. And that's how other issues started popping up. You know, that that helped pave the way to me becoming so politically active, where it's not just a matter of education, it's a matter of being a voice for people who are unable or unwilling or don't want to speak up. And I've always been a caretaker, a helper, Mm -hmm. you know, and... Now I'm just doing it in a louder and organized way. And so interesting. So you were actually a teacher in the first school that had co-location conflicts yeah. with Success Academy, the biggest charter school network in the state. And, and that's when they were first just starting out. So that, that was just like at kind of like the ground floor. Yeah. And eventually you got a little bit more aware of the other big issues like school funding and standardized testing, I assume. Yeah, I mean, I wound up learning learning a lot of what they would do mm-hmm. because what I mean by that is that you have to report the with the kids that you have by the end of October for funding. 
Mm-hmm. And what would, what would seem to happen for years was that when it, after October, we find some of those kids were like, I guess, interviewing our school or other schools, mm-hmm. that they would release them. And that's around when it came out that they were pushing the kids out, you know, yeah. for testing. Right. And they were reading them out. And any and time they said they didn't do that, it was just full. I mean, it was always consistent with how they would do things. And when it came around to the testing, they, it was insane. They'd have stickers, slam the test. Yeah. And, you know, they'd wear the shirts. And the right. things I would hear in the hallway, mm-hmm. you know, really kind of degrading the kids. It's like, oh, in your practice test, you only got, I don't know, a two, but you need to have fours. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's one thing cutting them up, but they would make, but what I would hear is almost like, you're a failure. And if you don't get this number, like the four, then you're no good. And right. and I remember hearing that, and I felt awful for the kids. Yeah. It's like they're making, you know, at the time they were making it like these tests are the be all and end all. So you have these kids that know how to take the test, but then what else? What's going to happen, you know, when we go to high school and then go to college? when it's not beaten into them about how to take the test. Yeah, they don't get the intensive prep that they're used to, right? They have to they have to kind of do it on their own, and they also also have to integrate with, you know, other types of kids that, that haven't been through that kind of training or, or indoctrination, right? Exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, outside of academics, I mean, you're messing with these kids emotionally and mentally. We're talking to Mindy Rosier Rayburn here, and we were discussing her journey into activism in New York State. She is a union representative. She is a, a Bernie Sanders delegate. She is a member of other grassroots groups like I am, fighting for social justice, and definitely on the side of public education. We were talking uh, first about charters, and then it got a little bit into standardized testing, and you were explaining how the kids in your building the things that you saw about how they were indoctrinated and kind of how they were being set up for, for their education. Yeah, I found it sad because it's, it's not just academics that they were affecting. They were affecting their mental health. You know, they're affecting their social-emotional skills. I mean, it's, I really hope that someone is doing a real in-depth longitudinal study on the kids that started off, and yeah. whether it's Success Academy or others. I mean, I know that there's they've been following some of the kids here and there, but I'd be, I be I really would like to see what the long term effects are, well, you know, because I'm sure there's there's going to be something. And I know with my kids, my kids, like I said, we're just at 75. Mm-hmm. Our standardized kids still take the standardized tests and are often at stages and I said. But even even so, we have kids that are in District 75 for a reason. Yeah. And we work with our kids as best as we can. But when you have a third grader who has difficulty reading, not because we're not doing our job, but because he has a true disability that we're working with, mm-hmm. and they need to take these tests, they walk out of there feeling like failures. Right. And I remember every year... It would be a, a which is actually what would be around now. The testing, it, it, the testing time would always break my heart because our kids would be like, "Oh, I don't want to feel like a failure. I can't do it. It's too hard." 
And it's gotten to the point where I'd be like, you know what? You can do the best you can. Yeah. That's, all. That's, 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 that's what we could say to them. They're not failures. They're not anything. Yeah, I understand you stuff so hard. And I'm so sorry that, you know, we got to do that. But do the best you can. I love you no matter what you get. Yeah, that's one of the, one of the big complaints is the labeling that the kids have to undergo starting in third grade, and it depends whether or not their parents are actually sharing with them. But you know, parents get usually in the summer, late summer, of uh, the kid the results, and they you know seventy percent of the kids in the state the first year were not proficient. I imagine D seventy five kids. There's a very high rate of kids that are behind grade level in their functioning ability. So the kids from a very young age have to start dealing with this labeling, you know, and, and it follows them year after year after year to the point where they kind of like self-identify as not proficient or uh, the intimidation factor just gets worse and worse. And uh, I'm sure you've been seeing this for your whole career, right? Because the testing started yeah. in, the, in the early 2000s. I, I've been with the Department of Education since 2006, so I'm a teacher a total of uh, 23, a little over 23 years. Mm -hmm. um, when I do the testing in my school, since I'm the science, my, I do the fourth grade test, right. uh, science test. And it's a two-day test. The first test, I always try to, you know, it's hands-on. you got to do three different, um, you know, three different activities. Mm -hmm. And... Then it's fun to do, but the questions that they're asking, it's complex. It's making them, it's very cognitive heavy, mm -hmm. and we are working with kids who have cognitive issues. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always feel bad. And like I said, I, I try to, I talk it up, I try to make it fun the first part. I, you know, I'll tell them that the second part, second part is hard, mm -hmm. but you just do the best you can. Yeah. But the thing is, I never know how they do. Right. I don't I, I, I don't know what the test results are or anything. Since they're fourth graders, most of the fourth graders then like when they go into fifth, they go to the main site. Some of them say it's all depending. I'm not exactly sure how they work that, but the fifth graders are with the fourth graders. So we're all within the IEP ratio that's mandated. Mm -hmm. But it's so it's like, okay, I'm doing the fourth grade science test to, you know, say usually it's about 10 fourth graders, you know, a year that I do that with. A percentage of that, you know, that's tied to, you know, my evaluation and everything. And it's like, and that goes back to the whole thing. It's like, granted, it's not what Cuomo wanted years ago. You know, where it was, what was it, 50% of our evaluation was based on the test. The matrix. Yeah, that's still actually on the books. I mean, we, we still have the matrix on the books where one column is uh, the standardized test results that are attributed to you, whether or not you teach that subject or you teach those kids. Mm -hmm. And then along the other column, it's your in-person observations from your administrators, which... I guess you could say is a little more fair, but, you know, there's problems with that whole system, too. Exactly. You know, I, I really, it was last summer, but I really enjoyed hearing the um, the podcast by Gimlet Media. They had uh, the startup podcast, and they featured Success Academy, uh, and they followed them for, like, two years, I think. And to me, that's really, you know, the definitive look. You know, I thought it was pretty fair and balanced. But on the, on the testing, you really got to see how they use it 
against kids who are just not there and they're just not like, you know, the, the, the best test takers and how they get pushed out, how it's systematized. They spoke to former employees. They spoke to parents. You got to, you know, speak to students. I thought that that was a really, really good look for anybody that's, you know, unaware of, of how it works. Um, they spoke about the fight for space, and they, they spoke about the public relations battles. Did you see that seven-part uh, podcast series, or listen to it, rather? Um, no, I, I, I completely haven't gotten fascinated by it. I would be interested in hearing it. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, it's the kind of thing where the reporters probably would have loved to speak to somebody in your position, too. I'll share it with you after, and and I've linked to it before. I've Yeah, Gimlet Media, and the, the podcast is called Startup, and they had access to all Success Academy employees. And what emerges is a picture of the pros and cons, you know, and basically... If your kid is really advanced and really suited for heavy discipline and this kind of rigorous environment, then it's, you know, then it, it works out. It's good. But for all the kids who are maybe developmentally delayed or have some kind of disability or are just not great test takers, you can see how they're systematically pushed out to pad their numbers. And it's a really good kind of expose of that. And I'm sure you know the situation very well but you know for the average parent or maybe you know just a, a casual observer or the taxpayer it bears learning the privatization of public schools how the charters were opened under Bloomberg and how they use the tests to try to paint a picture of public schools as somehow failing or less than and they cherry pick the kids testing really can't be separated from the charter issue it's Charters and testing, to me, they've always been, the tests have been the gasoline in the engine that pushes charter schools around the country, and, and especially here in New York, where we have Success Academy, you know, one of the most insidious networks of billionaires yeah. and donors and astroturfers, you know, they really have quite an operation. But it's going to be interesting this year, because let's when the year started, at least that in my building, I'm not too sure how it was at the other site. But there's always been, you know, high turnover. That of the teachers. That's that's wild, widely known. Yeah. The principal that was there, she was she was there for quite a while. They wound up getting rid of most of the staff coming into September. Mm-hmm. And my understanding was that most of the staff was, was told not to come back. And there were other staff staff members that because of Realizing the access of all the of all the staff, they decided to leave. So there was like a big big upheaval. Yeah. And um, and I remember I, I shared that information with a couple couple of the reporters, the, the reporters that I usually would report to. They moved on to other other tabloids or other papers and stuff. But yeah. um. Right, education reporters don't really pay get paid that much, so they, they, they're only in there for a while. Yeah, and it's, it is what it is, but, you know, there's always been high turnover, seeing all the new faces, and it just seems like it's a little bit more disorganized than it's ever been. And I, and I just found that interesting, because it really seems like the school now is run by one teachers who don't really necessarily know what they're doing in the real world, they're following the script of what they need to 
in the school. And Buster, and I'm like I said, I'm not sure how it was at the other sites if there was also big staff turnover or things like this. But if they don't have their testing, what is it that they're going to be spouting about? You know, come next year, we're all on the same playing field. We all had to close our school buildings down. We all had to do our work from home. Right. It's been awfully quiet. That's You're right. not hearing anything, you know, how innovative and great and whatever it is that they're doing. You're not hearing that. Yeah, the testing yeah. was canceled this year. Third to eighth grade testing and regions. They're not going to have the gasoline in the engine for next year, I guess. And, you know, we'll see what else happens. I mean... A lot of this is, is very, very political when it comes to Success Academy in particular because Eva Moskowitz was offered the Secretary of Education position by Trump when he first got elected and uh, she turned it down. And then she, you know, but she was, was kind of in Trump's favor for a while and then kind of fell out of favor when she got a lot of pressure from the parents in her schools and her teachers in her schools who were very anti-Trump. And I think it became unsustainable for her publicly to support Trump. And then one of the really big scandals, you know, in the Trump administration was the time where she said that was the breaking point And she said, we no longer can, you know, support this administration. So there was kind of an odyssey for her, but you know, I'm sure in the beginning Trump had campaigned on expanding charter schools, and here she was, you know, the greatest example or the, the greatest charter school entrepreneur. Things didn't work out. I, you know, she probably wanted to keep lines of communication open to try and get federal help, but on the federal level, Trump already announced that he was ending the the charter school grant program, and he was t- instead taking uh, all that money and turning it into block grants, uh, including that in block grants. So now, state by state, each state can decide how they want to spend that that money. And if they want charter schools, they can put it towards charter schools. But if they don't want charter schools, they can also make rules about that. So uh, I guess it's good and bad, but the budget, the proposal that, uh, that Trump put forward took that four, it was about $400 million a year out of that budget line. So um, the the national charter school people, the organizations, they're kind of on their heels now. And here in New York City, the cap has been in place for two years now, uh, ever since the, the legislature went Democratic in 2018, and they got seated in January of 2019. The cap has been in place. So it, you know, it is a little weird right now. It's a little quiet right now on the charter school front. Very right? quiet. <laughs> yeah. The last shakeup I think that was at, the, at my building with Sephardim was actually my fault, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? It has been very, very quiet, even even in our building itself. I mean, other, other than, like I said, the, you know, the handful of teachers that we see, I think it's been really quiet. But not that long. I think it was a matter of like a week after Moskowitz declined the position, you know, for education secretary. Ivanka Trump actually came to right. our building. Yeah. Oh, um, to your building. Okay. I read about that, and that was after she had already declined. Am I, am I remembering that wrong? I, I think th- it was afterwards. Okay, because I remember Ivanka. I remember reading that Ivanka was visiting charter schools during the campaign. And so if, if she visited after, that might have been, that's possible, but it, it was probably something different. And I know that Paul Ryan also 
came early in uh, the Trump administration to visit some charter schools in New York City, too. And that was my building, and that was the last time there was a big hurrah. <laughs> oh, so they, they always seem to send them to Harlem One, huh? Yes. Really? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, like I said, my memory's a little bit off about, about exactly the timing with Ivanka, but um, that's easy enough to to look up. But we got word of it, is it like the day before? It was, it was around the time we, where it was our first parent-teachers conferences. So okay. that means it was in no, around November, right. around November. Mm-hmm. And she, she, I remember Ivanka came in. She was. She did not walk through our school. She went through our side of the building. She went upstairs. She went around, and then she and then she put out a tweet. How it was so wonderful, you know, to come see like all the classes and blah blah blah. Um, and she made a comment something about like ask the teacher. Like she was thought, like she was following a, a hashtag that that was starting around that time that she was trying to push. You know, but it was supposed to, in her mind, I guess, to push the charter school mm-hmm. agenda. Right. You know, but then, you know, I, guess I didn't get a reply, but I felt it was important to put it out there that she couldn't be bothered to visit the other school, you know, the other classrooms in the building. Right. She's, you know, she's saying about how education is so important and, you know, everything is wonderful and you have to support the kids and everything she was saying, but she, but she couldn't look into our school. Right. The other, or the, um, or excuse me, Security Truth or Harlem Gems. Right. And I called her out on it. And the whole thing with Paul Ryan, that one, we, we definitely got a heads up with because the cops came to speak to our office to say that they were closing down the street. Right. Um, they were closing down the street because Paul Ryan was coming. And as soon as I heard that, I contacted all my contacts, <laughs> you know, you know, they, you know, basically everyone from DSA to the UST to, you know, you name the graphics, you know, vocal, you NYCC, I mean, HUE, you had them all, all of the, the hardworking, amazing grassroots organizations that were out there. Mm-hmm. When I contacted them and they contacted their people and then we contacted the media, um, I was, you know, my coworkers, they knew that I was very active, politically active, education activist active. And I said, watch, look out the window a little after 11 o'clock, you're going to see something. Because we had an idea of when he was supposed to to arrive. Uh-huh. But since I alerted everybody, that, that corner of Harlem on 100 and, and um, excuse me, 118th Street, there was a, there was like, so, uh, geez, how many, I think it was, uh, the highest point, it was around 700 people or something. Oh, really? Was, wow, that's yeah, a, a, shut it. And it was a big... I shut that. I'm sorry, go ahead. It was, uh, so it was a total big protest. Yeah. Okay. It, it was huge. I mean, one of my coworkers still jokes to this day about how I shut down Harlem. How no one should mess with me. And I'm like, <laughs> no, it's not a matter of messing with me. It's like, you don't mess with my school. Right. Because it was also um, Teacher Appreciation Week. So when he was, so he was going to visit a charter school during Teacher Appreciation Week. I thought he should see the hard work that all of us teachers did—not just charter school teachers, but the public school teachers. You know, and I remember, you know, when I, because I had spoken to reporters, you know, via the newspaper or, you know, TV. I mean, that's what I was saying, and I was. This was also during the time 
when um, Social Security, you know, became the topic of conversation again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, all I need to look at the faces of all the kids that will be affected by the Social Security cut. Right. Because that's going to affect all of our students and our families. Yeah. And I, I kept it to those two things, the message clear, why I'm upset, why I'm protesting. Now, it was not during my school time. When I did go outside, it was during my lunch break. Mm-hmm. When I had to be in class, I taught, mm-hmm. you know, at 3 o'clock. He still hadn't arrived at 3 o'clock. I joined everybody. Oh. I, I think that they were probably trying to avoid the crowd. And because of the plans of him coming to the school, we had to change our busing. Because, you know, since our, our block was blocked off mm-hmm. um, for incoming traffic, we had to exit our kids through playground through a different way to accommodate, you know, someone who didn't even want to visit our school. But since I was so vocal all day, and others were so vocal all day about the fact he was visiting the charter and not our school, you basically shamed him into visiting one of our classes. Oh, okay. And, yeah, he, and he, he he went into one of our classes, actually a very sweet autism class, and he came in there, and, you know, he was asking the kids for their names. They, you know, these were low-functioning low kids. They weren't able to say their names, but mm-hmm. he's a new face, and they're smiling. You hear the noise outside of the people protesting, <laughs> and he's joking, saying, oh, they're there for me. It was a matter of him being there for, like, a little of a minute, you know, saying, hey, I'm Paul Ryan. I, I visited a public school classroom. I did my job, and then he left. Wow. Um, of course, when he was interviewed later, he did not mention our school. He only mentioned Success Academy. Mm-hmm. So I made sure. Uh, it's like I can actually tell like when reporters put up certain reports. It's based on the reports I was giving them because um, you know there were there were reports that related that reflect that reflected the fact that he did visit a public school classroom, but he just doesn't want to admit it. Huh. Yeah. For, for whatever reason. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm protective of my school, of my students, uh, public schools in general, my career, you name it. And I just feel that when you have someone like Ivanka or Paul Ryan, you know, visit the charter school and not the public school. It's a huge insult. Yeah. It's very telling. Yeah, that's it's incredibly telling. That's definitely a good one there. It's already after four. Let's talk a, a little bit about the elections. As it stands, this was the week where Bernie dropped out and he um, endorsed Biden. And then a day later, Obama endorsed him. And then yesterday, Elizabeth Warren endorsed him. Now, you were a Bernie delegate going back to 2016. Is that correct? That is correct. And did this you. Is my second rodeo. <laughs> right, and I know there's a little bit of a learning curve to it because I interviewed uh, Troy LaRaviere about this, and you know he was in the DNC platform committee negotiations in 2016, representing educators, and and he was there as a Bernie delegate with Chuck Pascal and some other people, and he kind of described how it went in there. Do you have any stories from 2016 about? how delegates may or may not have been participating in the process. Take us through, you know, what happens when... Uh, did you go to the convention uh, that, that was in Philadelphia? I did. I was at the convention. 
it was an interesting experience. It was an honor of sorts to be there, but it was also heartbreaking. Going into the convention, we knew he was going. We knew he was going to succeed. You know, we knew he he talked to all of us. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and I, I mean, to this day, I'm, I'm, I still kept kept that. You know, he wanted us to walk in there and be respectful. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not want us causing a scene, walking out, fooling, or any of that. Right. Some of us listened, a lot of us didn't. Right. Um, and it did cause issues. And of course, you know, we are hoping the, uh, <laughs> the crazy Bernie uh, fanatics, yeah. you know, dialogues. And it, it, it was, it's hard to, for me to put the words together because I just found it very sad. This was the first time I was working so closely and so much on a campaign like this, mm-hmm. you know, helping to do two, two big rallies for today's the 16th. Actually, yeah, four, uh, four years ago today, I, you know, I co-hosted a big rally down at Foley Square oh, where really? we marched up to Union Square. Mm-hmm. And the work that we put into that, because we, we had, I think, around 10,000 people come yet see this. It was such an amazing experience. And all the work putting into it and the hours you didn't sleep and the aggravation and everything. And that Monday night when he came out to speak at the convention, I lost it. I cried. Oh, yeah. Um, he had, yeah, he had, he had like, I think it was a five to ten minute, like, standing ovation of people just clapping and I love you, Bernie, and everything. And you stand and then you feet a look in his face and then you come into the realization that it's over. Yeah. That all the work that you did is done. And you just get that defeated feeling. And while I'm listening to his speech, you no, know, he's sitting there bawling like a baby. You know, I'm coming, you know, I'm thinking it out. I'm coming to the realization. Yes, you know, she may be done, you know, for 2016. You know, we'll, do, we'll, we'll deal with this, but the work that we did is not over and finished. Right. There's still work to do. You know, this isn't over. And I kept trying to tell myself that to help me get out of that defeat mode. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's difficult. And this time around, oh my God, <laughs> it still hurts. Yeah. And I'm not excited. I said from day one, people were asking me, you know, will you vote for the Democratic nominee, whoever it is? Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm still keeping keeping my word. I'm not happy about it. I'm not excited about it. Um, walking into 2016, voting for Hillary, my mindset was like, okay, I don't like Hillary. I've never liked Hillary. Right. You know, but I figured as a Democratic candidate, as a Democratic president, she would win. I felt it would be a lot easier to work with her, to to help her move things. You know, of course, in an organized effort, than say, Trump and, you know, all his cronies. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same thing could probably be about Biden. Now, Biden has his own baggage I'm not too happy about at all. And it's like, okay, so, you know, you, you right now we're looking at we're you have a choice of two people who have baggage. You know, yeah. granted, one is a lot worse than the other, but it's, instead of, you know, doing the whole, 
you know, the lesser of two evils, you're also dealing with baggage and some pretty serious, you know, claims of sexual misconduct that has me really upset. Yeah. You know... You know, we are, we're kind of repeating 2016, the standoff, except now we have the benefit of knowing that in 2016, how close the results ended up being and how people that voted for uh, the Green Party or people that, that sat it out actually made the difference in two states. And, you know, taking that information in, and I, and I mean this for both sides, really, because as a Bernie delegate, I'm also doing what Bernie says to do. It's a, it's a strategy, and he gave his promise at, in, in the early going as part of the team player. But I am talking to Bernie supporters, or, you know, or former Bernie supporters. I'm talking to so many people that are just not there yet. And, you know, some of them are claiming that they never will be. I know we still have five months to go. But what I've been posting lately and reporting lately is that, you know, Biden and Bernie seem to have a different relationship than than Hillary and Bernie. The last couple of nights, you know, Bernie made some statements, announcements that Biden will be uh, making more concessions. You know, Biden already did the Medicare going down to age 60 thing. He did a little bit of on college tuition, not too much. And then what Bernie said the night before last is that Biden will be making announcements shortly on immigration reform, criminal justice reform, on college tuition, on debt forgiveness, and he will be supporting a $15 minimum wage. And so it's still a very emotional time. You know, people who have been canvassing and calling and, you know, campaigning are kind of switching gears and and trying to adapt to the new reality. But I am hopeful that Biden will move more because we saw what happened in 2016. You know, because of our process, you know, our flawed process, this is how it ended up. You know, we we do always get steered into two choices, and this year is no different. But, yeah, I was really curious about the 2016 experience, whether whether you ended up being involved in any of the platform committee negotiations or whether there was other things that delegates were contacted for, whether... The, the DNC made any overtures, or I just wanted to find out because I've never been to the convention. I know that on the call, on the Zoom call uh, from two nights ago that they said that the Bernie campaign is in talks with the Biden campaign and that if they do cancel the New York, if Bernie agrees to cancel the New York primary, there will be apparently some kind of negotiation where a certain amount of delegates will just be assigned to Bernie from right. the state. And so that means I hope that you would be right back there this year. I don't even know if it's going to be in person, but... Um, I, I hope so, too, because I was too excited the last time, you know, because for me, most of my life never being political to then being at the convention. I mean, I found that it was an honor, you know, of sorts. I mean, it's not... And what happened there, I would say in general, this is just like a... I'm making just like a big... Broad um, statement. I feel that we were, meaning the Bernie delegates, were underutilized. Walking into the convention, it was known that he was going, he was going to proceed, you know, his his um, campaign, and that she was going to come out the the nom, you know, the pick nominee. Right. So you walked into that, and there was already that feel of arrogance, and there was already that feeling. You don't belong. 
you need to uh, you need to upsell again. Yeah. So it was it was that was the feeling. I remember that I had the whole week, like where we stayed. We were also with uh, New York was also with Virginia, okay. and it seemed like each big hotel had like whichever state. Okay. And you could usually tell. I hate to say this. You could usually tell who were the Bernie delegates and who were the Hillary delegates. Yeah. And I, I remember even at my at the hotel now, I wasn't dressed crazy. It was really, the temperature was really warm. I was dressed, I guess for me, normal. Mm-hmm. T-shirt, capri pants, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But I still would get looked down you know, by some, you know, by some of the, I guess it was the Virginia Hillary delegates, because I guess I didn't look like I should have a seat at the table. Right. You know, because they see tattoos, they see red hair, who knows, whatever, whatever it was that they were making the judgment. Yeah. But we were made to feel that we weren't welcome. Right. And walking away from the convention, I mean, we all went through you name the emotion. It's like you felt defeated, but it, we, but in a sense, we, you know that part of our of our life came to a close. And then it's like, okay, what do we do now? We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And out of that came Nitan. You know, because yeah. we were all we one way or another we all connected as being the New York delegation, mm-hmm. and we came out of it Nitan. And we worked on countless amounts of issues and hoping, you know, certain people like AOC to get into office. I mean, we had the manpower basically in every district throughout New York City working on some kind of an issue that affects us. But, and you just know, so people know that she's talking about New York Progressive Action Network. And NIPAN is a force right now. I'm part of a Rockland County NIPAN chapter, and there's chapters all over the state and Long Island, and they have been part of the resistance, and they've been part of some uh, successes, definitely supported the the anti-IDC movement, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Julius Salazar, and a lot of overlap with DSA, so yeah, I just wanted to make sure people understood what NIPAN was. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm proud of that. I, you know, we walked out of the convention in a sense, losers, you know, but it opened up the doors for us to all work together. And NIPAN is not the only organization. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other grassroots that came out of it. A lot more people started, what is DSA, you know, and looking up what DSA is, looking up this. I mean, people became active and motivated because they learned during the, the 2016 that we can fight back, that we, you know, that we can, you know, protest things, we can fight for things, you know, the things we didn't think we could do before. Yeah. People found their voice. Right, right, And right. that's what, walking into 2020, we, we were ready. New York, we were ready, because we already still had our district, you know, through night and we were able to, you know, in our districts and in our organizations and the Whatever it is in our circles, we're able to get the people. And we got a full slate ready for, uh, to be targets for Bernie. Yeah. Um, Biden didn't, did not do so well in the delegate. But it's, I have to say this, and I really I don't want to forget this about the whole thing with the 2020. This is my opinion, of course. I don't know if it's 
if it's exactly true or not. I'm just going by how things unfolded. But I, it, to me, it seems like it was a brilliant political move. I mean, granted, it did not work in our favor. You know, seeing Bernie, Bernie was doing amazing coming up last year. And, you know, and then once, once things started going with the, um, with the election, he was doing well. Yeah. That Sunday, when, you know, surprisingly, when, when Buttigieg decided to drop out of the race, I remember thinking, hmm, it seems a little bit weird. And then all this, and then Amy, she dropped out of the race. And then the two of them wind up endorsing, endorsing Biden, excuse me, Biden. Yeah. And then I start thinking about some of the conversations that we were hearing about how Obama and some others, like the Democratic elite, so to speak, were in conversations on basically on how to stop Bernie. Mm-hmm. And Buttigieg was supposedly part of the conversation. Now, whether that whole thing took place or not, I don't know. But it sure seemed that as soon as Buttigieg and Kovacar, they dropped out, um, they endorsed, and then Biden started doing better, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, Warren, who, I'm sorry, I initially loved Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. I felt she threw him under the bus. Yeah. You know. Well, they had a I, they, they had a very public spat, and then it became apparent that they were not as close as people might have thought. She was kind of caught out there, you know, still in the race, but really, really not doing well. At the same time, you know, she was kind of in the progressive lane. It was compromising Bernie's ability to compete against Biden, who who had already consolidated all of the moderates. You know, the only the only one left at that point, I think, was Bloomberg and, you know... And right, 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 and Tulsi. But she wasn't... Just getting, forgetting about her because it would be so quiet on her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, she's, she really didn't crack 1% or 2%, so, you know, it, it's, it is easy. But I remember when the Warren and Bernie spat became public where Warren's campaign released the claim that Bernie said a woman couldn't win... And, you know, nobody really believed that because everybody knows of whether you like Bernie or not, everybody knows that he's honest and that, of, of course, he's for equality and, you know, women's rights and all that. And, and, he had, and he had actually been the one that was encouraging Elizabeth Warren to run in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. And he got into the race when Warren refused to challenge Hillary's. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And so that's when we saw, uh-oh, they're not going to be coming together anytime soon. Instead, they're kind of cannibalizing each other's votes. And, you yeah, know. And that, and that one, one of the debates when she was asked point blank, she could have cleared the air. Right. Saying because you know what what the comment actually meant or whatever it was, she she could have cleared the air. She didn't. She, she do. I remember she threw him under the bus, and I remember the look on his face. Yeah, she kind of yeah. doubled down, and you know that you know people didn't know what their what the nature of their relationship was, and you know that it was so icy. But there it was, and it seems as though that's something pretty minor. I mean, if these are really you know progressive giants in the Senate that are highly motivated to get progressive legislation passed, and they didn't realize that if they joined forces, they could be much more formidable, you know, as a unit. I had a piece out before the voting. I said, you know, before the voting starts that they need to join forces. And to me, it didn't matter who was president and who was vice president. You know, just that you had that 
that coalition, I mean, I prefer Bernie, but I would understand, you know, but I would, I would be fine, you know, with, with, you know, a Warren Bernie ticket, you know, either way. And I thought before the primary starts, I said, they have to do something radical and announce this before the voting starts. Because once it starts, one of them, and I, I figured it was going to be Bernie, is going to do better than the others. The other one's just going to drop away and then it'll be too late. If they did that early, you know, it's basically the strategy that, that Biden used later on when Amy and Pete got behind him. We do see in print now that Obama was making that happen, that it's a little bit leaky, but that story is coming out as well. And we had a clue when Obama's, you know, made a statement a couple of weeks before that saying that we're too far left, we can't let that happen. And so he was always waiting back in the wings to see if he needed to give that push. And when Bernie won Nevada, and he had done really, really well in New Hampshire and Iowa, that's when they broke glass in case of socialism and and Obama, you know, started doing all that stuff behind the scenes. You had the Clyburn endorsement and then contacting Amy and Pete and Beto O'Rourke and telling them mm -hmm. to to endorse Oh yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. Let's not forget Beto who was originally a Bernie supporter. Yeah, and Obama also contacted Bernie too, but obviously Bernie was in a different lane. So we know that now, and you have to give credit to the centrists or the moderates. This plan might have been there all along. I think they might have been giving Beto and Klobuchar and Kamala Harris a look to see, you know, if they catch fire and then maybe they they get behind them as the moderate candidate because Biden, if we want to defeat Trump, we all have to get behind him now. So it's really, it's really kind of an awkward situation, but you know, Bernie is playing out his hand and I think it's going to be really tough for Bernie to get his people, his supporters and former supporters in line. You know, I see some of them are, are turning their back on Bernie now in some of these groups. Yeah. And there's a lot of time. There's going to be plenty of ups and downs. You know, I'm afraid there's going to be a lot of surprises too. October surprises, yeah. you know, we have to buckle in for that. But yeah, so where do you see right now your position as a New York City teacher and a public education advocate and a Democrat? Because the way I see it is that we can still be very, very useful to the, the movement. I think that right now is the time to turn your attention to some interesting down ballot candidates and maybe put some work in there you know, like AOC is going for re-election. We have Jamal Bowman, who's going up against Elliot Engel, who I have endorsed. We have Samalee. Well. I love, I love Yes, we have Samalee Lopez, who was just endorsed by AOC in a very crowded race. Um, and she was also Nipan. Oh, right, 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 and, and yeah, yeah, Nipan endorsed her too, right? Uh, and and that's a crowded field, you know. She's going up against uh, what's his name, the cowboy hat guy. Diaz. Yes, Ruben Diaz Senior, right? Yeah. yeah, and he's a he is a anti-abortion Democrat, and I've I anti heard anti-gay, anti-this, he's anti almost everything. Right, and and he was and he was one of the favorites because he's a known quantity, and he you know he's been around, and he's also it's also a very crowded field. So hopefully, Samalise will get some some octane you know, a boost out of the AOC endorsement and. You know, uh, that's what I feel we probably have to do now is really just look at the ground up races, you know, maybe some state legislature races where there's a good progressive and they have a good shot, you know, look around the state. One, look, yeah. one thing we really have to do in the city, I mean, yes, the mayor race is coming up, but mm -hmm. we have city council and a good chunk of them are all going to be termed out. Oh, so okay. We, we need to make sure we have good people and that are going to be running for their seats. Right. 
and city council right so and you know that's important i mean what new york city is going to look like in the wake of the coronavirus is going to be very different and the economics are going to be different transportation is going to be different we're hearing that some of the like california and and even overseas in europe that they're going to be bringing back uh, schools in in staggered shift and that there's going to be like an early and a late shift and so that's that could also be a possibility for new york city that masks are going to be mandatory i mean we're looking at a whole new kind of outlook so yeah city council it's it's important um you know new york city is about it's over 40 percent of the state population wise and so it's it's really like a super city and so, yeah, is there anything else that you would like to say? I mean, what is Mindy's prescription for how we move forward in, in the wake of what happened on the federal level and what's going on now? I say one of the smartest things we all need to do is to pay attention to what may not be obvious. I think on a national level, there's a whole lot of distraction. Yeah. There's a whole lot of misinformation. I believe a lot of a lot of it is deliberate, if not all of it. I mean, I don't. Things were not handled properly before coronavirus. They're not being. I don't believe they're being handled properly now. What's going to happen when all is said and done? Who knows? The best thing that I basically this is the advice I'm giving. You know, been giving to everybody, like just in talking about things. We just got to make the best out of this really crappy situation. We have to make the best out of it. And everyone is doing the best that we can. Mm -hmm. And we just have to make sure that moving forward, that, you know, always keeping the burning message in the back of our minds to care about someone you don't know. Right. That's how I've been. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said earlier, I'm a caretaker. I'm a helper. Mm-hmm. It's in my blood. It's always how I am. And I think more people need to be that way. And as we're, you know, finding out we're in a very different situation, we need to be respectful of others. Yeah, wearing a mask is annoying. But you know what? It's better than not wearing the mask and possibly being around others, you know, who may be infected or not. You need to care about others when you leave the house and when you're doing things. And when it comes to the elections, I know this is a pipe dream, but just be fully honest. People are fragile right now. Yeah. You know, mental health, I know speaking from myself, you know, I have a good support system. Mm-hmm. But depression is going to creep in. Anxiety is going to creep in. And I think on a local level, we need to be aware of you know, our brothers and sisters to make sure that they're doing okay. Our kids are okay. And I know that's something immediately I would like to focus on because this is a very scary, scary time. You know, every day you're hearing 600 plus people are dying and those are people that are family and friends and everything. Yeah. And we need to be grateful that we're okay and it's okay to feel that way. But we need to take precautions. We need to be safe. We need to pay attention to what our local politicians, our national politicians are saying and what they're not saying. Yeah. You know, because right now, how elections going to go from here forward, everything is going to be online. We can't have rallies. We can't have town halls. I mean, kind of have, like, LinkedIn, virtually. But it's not the same. It's not the same kind of campaigning. Right. And... 
I'm concerned that a lot of dialogue is going to be lost because it's going to be twisted. Mm -hmm. And I hope it won't be another crazy, um, dare I say, shit show from 2016. But I think right now people need something to look forward to. Yeah. And I think all too often you don't have it. You haven't found it yet. Yeah. You know, since we're all just trying to survive the next day, and every day blends in for the next day. Yeah. While obviously whatever the turnout is about what's going to happen for the June election, whether us delegates are going to be on the ballot or not, we still have to vote. And we still have to come up, come November. You know, so we got to vote then. But right now, we need to take also take care of each other and make sure we're okay. That's, that's a big, huge concern of mine right now. Yeah, I mean, I've been uh, going down my contact list and try to try to catch up with some people that I haven't spoke to in a while. And I see how, you know, I want to see how they're doing with the virus and have people remember, you know, the good times and remember that we'll get through this. But yeah. You know, maybe if, maybe if there's somebody that is on your staff that lives alone or, you know, maybe their their family is in some other city or town or whatever, spend some time, you know, check in with them, see how other people are doing. I'm here in a, in a house of four, so we have, we have each other. I'm thinking of somebody, some of the 20-somethings on my staff that are renting a room and they're, they're not allowed to leave that one room. Crazy to yeah. think of. The weeks and weeks on end here. It's good advice. And we want to thank Mindy for sharing some time with us. Once again, this is Mindy Rosier Rayburn, New York City teacher and public education activist, member of NIPAM, Bernie delegate, etc. We really want to thank you for talking here today. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. All right. Thank you.